we're in message number three of this series that we're calling Answers. And we're trying to answer a difficult question. The question is this, what do you do when you don't know what to do? We've been trying to answer that question the last few weeks at Journey, and we've seen some really good, I hope, spiritual answers to questions. What do you do when you don't know what to do? The answer is not nothing. The answer is always something. And we've been, as we've been looking at the Gospel of John, as we've been studying Scripture, Jesus has kind of been showing us what to do when we need the natural to meet the supernatural. We've had two great weeks of learning. But let me rephrase the question and maybe go a little deeper today, because today this series hits a point of tension with questions like this. What do you do when it's very, very clear that Jesus has the answer that your life needs, but you don't desire to live in the direction that he tells you to? What do you do when it's very, very clear that you, that you need Jesus to heal you deeply, but you are not open to Jesus changing you radically? What do you do when maybe you have committed to follow Jesus into eternity, but you have zero intention of following him here and now while you're alive? What do you do when you need a miracle, but you reject the miracle worker in your everyday living? That's the tension that presents itself in today's Bible text. If you have a Bible, we're in John chapter 5, or you can fire up your Bible app on your phone to that or your tablet. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can borrow today. They've actually got a Bible you can have. If you don't have one, write your name in this one and keep it. But in John chapter 5, we meet the spiritual tension of trying to figure out what to do when we really, really need Jesus in our life right now, but we maybe really, really don't want to follow Jesus in our life right now. Or we want what Jesus has for us, but not who Jesus says we're supposed to be. You see, in John chapter 5, we're presented again with this thought that we've been giving every week of this series. Following Jesus is not just a decision. It's a direction. You don't just decide to follow Jesus. It's not a moment in time, a decision that you make, and then you catch up with it on the other side of eternity. Following Jesus is not a decision. It's a direction. It's a journey. It's, It's the way that you live your life. It's a certain way to live your life. And we find out as we study the book of John that a journey towards Jesus, a journey with Jesus, a journey following Jesus, really the deeper you go in that journey with Jesus, the more you're able to believe and lean into things of faith with Jesus. As a matter of fact, John wrote his book to show us that exact formula, that once you find out who Jesus is and what Jesus says, that if you'll lean into those things, you'll actually see Jesus do supernatural things that will allow you to place your faith in him. The word believe is used a hundred times in the book of John. John wrote his gospel, the book of John, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But John said, not just so you'll believe, but so that by believing, you might have life in his name. So that by believing, your life may be changed. So John's book kind of lays out in three sections. There's seven I am statements where Jesus says, this is who I am. It's why when people make a decision to follow Jesus, churches for centuries have said the first thing you need to do after you make a decision to follow Jesus is read the book of John because in the book of John you'll find out who Jesus says that he is. The book of John revolves around seven teaching narratives where after Jesus says, here's who I am, Jesus says, here's who you need to be if you're going to follow me. So you have Jesus saying, here's who I am and here's how you need to live your life. But then John gives us these seven miraculous signs to prove that Jesus is supernatural, to prove that Jesus has credibility, to prove that Jesus has authority. It's one thing for Jesus to say, here's who I am and here's how you need to live your life. Most of us would say, okay, well, prove to me why I should listen to you. 
Give me a reason why I should do exactly what you say. So John gives us seven miraculous signs to say to us, this teacher is on a whole nother level. And eventually, as we get to the end of the book of John, we're going to find out that this teacher is God. And if we want to follow him, we have to let him be God and we have to submit to his authority. But that doesn't always happen when we find out who Jesus is. Sometimes we want a little bit of Jesus but not a lot of Jesus, and that's the tension that we're going to study today. As you experience more spiritually, as you go deeper with Jesus, you're supposed to believe more. You're supposed to be transformed more. But a lot of us would be very comfortable with a surface relationship with Jesus. I need the miracle. I don't know that I want the miracle worker. I need to be deeply healed. I don't really care to be radically changed. I see that Jesus has what I need, but I'm not willing to give him what he asks of me. What do you do when you find yourself in that tension? That is the question that we're going to try to answer today in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Kind of hang on to your seats. This could be one of the most important messages of this series because of the curveball we're thrown of somebody who desperately needs Jesus, but who's not really into following him once Jesus gives him what he needs. It says, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. I mean, Saturday. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. You know, growing up, my family every summer used to go on a summer vacation to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Maybe you've been there growing up in Southern Ohio. Myrtle Beach is a lot closer to Southern Ohio um, than it is Kansas City. And I think every year from probably five or six through my first year of marriage, my family went, my mom, my two sisters, one of my brother-in-laws is here today uh, with us in service. And we've got probably some of our greatest memories in life from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And we would go and we'd do the same thing every year. We'd go, we'd hang out at the beach, we'd swim at the pools on our resort. Dad and I would play a little tennis, a little bit of golf. We'd go to the water slides. We would always go to a big uh, cafeteria, a big K&W cafeteria that they had there. One night, we'd always go downtown and played all the arcade games. And when we went down on the arcade and trying to walk by the boardwalk, um, there were the same stores selling the same stuff every year. You have probably had a vacation experience like this somewhere. Every store was selling the same beach towel and the same t-shirts and for us the same saltwater taffy. It was just which one you wanted to go into to get your stuff. But somewhere in this journey of my childhood, a shirt popped up that I have seen everywhere. I've seen it everywhere from the Grand Canyon to Niagara Falls to the Rocky Mountains to Hawaii to Las Vegas. A shirt that basically said something like this. I came to Myrtle Beach and all I got was this lousy 
t-shirt. Now we vacation my family every summer in Branson, and you can buy a t-shirt in Branson. It says, I came to Branson, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. A few weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we allowed people to lean into, step into making a decision for Jesus. And for people who made spiritual decisions, we gave away this really, really cool t-shirt that people, you know, got, they've been wearing, we've seen them out around town, they've been posting on Instagram. We said, man, the day you give your life to Jesus is your best day ever. And we gave away a pretty cool t-shirt for a big moment. But is it possible that for some of us, you meet Jesus and all you really get is a lousy t-shirt? Because you never intended your commitment to go beyond that day. You never intended your commitment to go beyond that moment. And you look back and say, on Easter 2016, or I don't know when your day was, on some day of my life, man, I met Jesus. But you get to the end of your life and you think, but all I got was a lousy t-shirt. In today's miracle, we've learned a lot from the miracles that we've been studying, but today's miracle holds... Really, I think, some special truth for us because today's miracle holds some warning signs. For those of us who would have a brief interaction with Jesus but not really want to follow Jesus, today's miracle has some interesting truth and some spiritual warning signs that I want to present to you because as we watch this man whose life was touched and changed by Jesus and then we watch the reaction that he has as he lives his life, man, there's some scary things in this text that I have seen at points in my life. And then maybe today you'll see some lights on your spiritual dashboard flashing as we go over these signs. Maybe you're going to think, man, I think, I think my Christianity might look a little bit like that. What are these warning signs that we see in John chapter 5? Well, the first is this. If you're a Christian that says, my life has been changed by, um, by um, what's his name? Then maybe you're not following Jesus like you should. Man, my life was totally changed by... Uh, by, um, what's his name? You know, when I, when I went to Liberty University, I, I had the, the unbelievable experience of playing football for my dad when I was in high school. Great coach. He spent too much time probably with me, helping me learn to throw a football than he should have. But I was able to get a scholarship to play football at Liberty University. And I went there and played football my freshman year through my senior year. Had a great experience doing that. Um, but I had an interesting moment in my football journey um, my junior year. God had called me. I went to Liberty to play football, not to go into ministry, but God had really changed my heart, done a work in my life, and I thought that I should be in ministry instead of education. I always wanted to be a school teacher and a football coach. Some days I still want to be a school teacher and a football coach, but God said, no, I want you to be a pastor. So I went into ministry, and I started serving at a youth group, um, a church that was connected to the university that I went to. And every Wednesday night um, and every Sunday morning, Danielle and I would go, um, we were dating at the time and she would work with the girls and I would work with the guys and we led small groups and did games and passed out bulletins and cleaned up afterwards and just did whatever. We were the youth leader that was just a little more mature than the kids sometimes. Danielle probably was all the time. I probably was a little bit of the time, but that, that was us. And we walked in on one Wednesday night and one of the things that I always had about my life is I, I never looked like a football player because I'm not a big person. I just, I look like a normal person. No one ever came up to me and said, you must play football. Like I ne- that, no one has ever said that to me in my entire life. So I don't look like a football player if you don't know who I am. But I walked in youth group that night um, and there was a guy who looked like a football player in the back of the room who was one of our new leaders. He's a big guy, strong guy. I'd never seen him before, so I went up and introduced myself to him. And I said, hey, I'm Christian. What's your name? And he told me his name, and I said, are you new here? And he said, yeah, I just started serving in the ministry. And I said, do you go to Liberty? 
And he said, yeah, I play football at Liberty. And I thought, well, that's odd. I have never seen you in my life. And I've, I mean, I've played for three years. I've never seen you in a locker room, never seen you. I didn't say that. I just thought that. I just thought, I don't want to embarrass this guy on his first. I just kind of rolled with it. I said, really? He said, yeah, um, I play tight ends. Oh, that's, that's great. I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to sink him totally, so I didn't ask him his number or anything. But I said, oh, you know, that's cool. Looks like you guys are having an okay season. Yeah, it's okay. So I was like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, and I just kind of went on my way. Well, w- during that service, I was one of the leaders who got to give the announcements and lead the game. So when they announced me to do the announcements to give the game, the youth pastor who was my mentor in college, his name was Barry Rice, um, said, hey, Christian's going to come up, give you the announcements, lead the game. He was all about hype. He wanted people to clap and cheer. So he's like, let's put, it, put your hands together for Liberty's quarterback as he comes up to do the game. And as I get on the stage, I look at this guy, and his face is turned, I mean, like <laughs> 10 shades of white, like he's getting ready to fall out of his chair. And I did the announcements and did the game, and I went back to my seat. And I mean, as soon as I sat down, man, he made a beeline, sat like right beside me. Like the kids were starting to worship again. And he was like just stumbling all over him. So, hey, man, I, you know, I just, I, um, I didn't realize you're the quarter. And he just went into this story. You know, I played football in high school and um, I hurt my knee and Liberty was kind of recruiting me and I was going to come here and I was going to do this and I couldn't get my knee healthy. So, um, you know, I don't, obviously, you know, like I don't really play football, but he says, but, um, you know, I didn't want you to think I was lying to you. And I said, all right, you know, I don't think you're a liar possibly delusional, but you know, you're not, I guess you're not a liar. But what he was saying was, and he had a really good story. What he was saying was at one point in my life, my life was going to look like this, but it didn't turn out that way. I think there are a lot of Christians, maybe most Christians who really intend to spend time with Jesus. They really plan to get to know Jesus, but then they don't for some reason. And I think there are some Christians who could walk up to Jesus, not really sure even who he is, because their life was changed by what's his name, and they could say, hey, I'm a Christian. And Jesus is like, really? Yeah. On Easter 2016, I made this decision, and I got this t-shirt, and, you know, I was, I was, I was going to start reading my Bible, and I was, I was really going to start living for Jesus, and I had intended to start praying, and I had this habit that I was going to spend 40 days, like, I, yeah, I, like, Man, I really meant to follow Jesus. At that moment, I I had really decided to follow Jesus, but then for some reason, I didn't. Look at verses 12 through 13. Is this you? It says, The teachers of the law found the man in the temple, and they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was. Because Jesus has slipped away into the crowd that was there. Needed a miracle, but not the miracle worker. You know, I was in my English class my senior year of high school when the O.J. Simpson verdict was read. Some of you probably sat in school and watched that live like I did on the little TV in the corner that Lisa Ling would give us our news on every morning. Um, some of you, like me, your, your class stopped. You'd watch that trial and you watched the verdict given live. Um, A show had just come on TV in the past 12 weeks, kind of reliving that trial that Danielle and I watched a little bit just because that was part of the culture of our youth. And two weeks ago, they had like the final segment, um, and Marsha Clark was giving her closing arguments. Um, And I hadn't remembered, you know, much of the trial, but as she gave her closing arguments, um, she said, you're looking at a man who, when he was called in Chicago and told that his wife had died, he did not ask how. 
He called him and said, OJ, you need to come home. Your wife's dead. And he said, OK. He didn't ask how. He didn't ask what happened. Um, she basically said he was told of this horrible tragedy, and he didn't ask any questions about it. And that was one of her reasons to believe that he was guilty of a crime that he was found innocent of. But I think there are a lot of Christians who once the dust settles on the spiritual euphoria of a decision, like they actually forget to really see who Jesus is. They actually don't stop to find out any facts about Jesus or who he is. And you say, yeah, I've decided to follow Jesus. But by the time you kind of pull your life together, he has moved on to some place. And you think, well, you know, I'm not really sure where he is. So so instead of giving everything to Jesus, some people don't give anything to Jesus. And you're left with a life saying, yeah, I've got a moment with, um, with um, what's his name? Yeah, he changed my life. We see a warning sign. If that's you, if your life has been changed by someone you don't follow, it's got to be a warning sign for your faith. Secondly, we see this warning sign number two that this man's faith was represented. And maybe yours is like this. His faith was seen by where he went, not by who he followed. And maybe you're a Christian that your faith is seen by where you go, not by who you follow. If you ask people who are far from God, if you ask people who don't go to church, if you ask people who are not Christians, but they know some Christians, to tell you something about a Christian, most of them will say, oh yeah, they go to church. That's what people who aren't Christians know about Christians. Oh, they go to church. I interact with more people who are not Christians now than I ever have before And I still have yet, when I ask somebody a question, what does it mean you have friends, you have family members, you have a mom and dad, you have a brother or sister, um, they're a Christian. Tell me what that means. I've never had anyone say, oh, they're a Christian. That means they follow Jesus. Do people describe your faith? If someone was to say, oh, yeah, I, I know them. My dad's a Christian. What's that mean? Oh, it means he follows Jesus. Are you intentional in your pursuit of a person? Named Jesus in a relationship with him or does your Christianity mean you go to church because it's Sunday and you go you go to you go to church As I was studying John chapter 5 in the last few weeks my heart literally jumped When I got to John chapter 5 I mean I literally had to put down my Bible and I said no way Because I'd had such strong emotion in the wrong direction about something That was brought to my attention is I read John chapter 5 verse 14 Let me show you the word that stopped me in my tracks John chapter 5 14 It says later Jesus found him at the temple I want you to underline the words the temple I want you to circle them I want you to highlight them because when I read that I thought wait a minute This makes sense now to me Because up until this week I'd really felt bad for this man in John chapter 5 I actually preached about this man at our Christmas Eve service, if you remember, and the hope that Jesus brought to his life, but I didn't get all the way through the text to see what I saw this week. But I felt bad about this man because I've been where he was. You say, what do you mean you've been where he was? Like metaphorically, you've been, like no, like literally I've been where he was. I've walked through the sheep gate in Jerusalem. I've gone to the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem many, many times. The sheep gate today is called Stephen's gate. It was where Stephen was pulled outside after his trial at the temple and he was stoned. The sheep gate is where Jesus would have ridden the donkey up into the Temple Mount area on Palm Sunday. I have walked many times from the Garden of Gethsemane up a hill through the sheep gate, hang a right inside the sheep gate and you're at the pool of Bethesda. I've been there and I teach this story there. 
And in November, as I taught this story for the first time, I, I looked at where I was and I looked up. I must have just been facing a, a different direction. And I, as I was teaching this story, I looked up and I realized from where this man was lying, you could see the temple. You could see the Dome of the Rock, the top of the Dome of the Rock, which sits right where the Old, the, the Old Testament and New Testament temple would have sat. You could hear the people on top of the temple. You could kind of hear the hustle and bustle of what was going on. If there would have been daily sacrifices being offered, he would have been able to smell them. And I thought about that man sitting there within eyesight of the worship of God, but the Old Testament saying that anyone who's been born lame or blind or de- defiled in any way can't come into the temple. And I thought, this man, his entire entire life probably just wanted to go to church, just wanted to go to the temple. And he had to sit every day listening to people pray, listening to people worship, listening to people make sacrifices, watching a community of believers, knowing that he could never be a part of them. And I thought, man, how sad for this man that every day he had to sit just outside of a place where he wanted to go more than anything in life. And that had upset me. I thought, man, how unfair to sit this man there and allow him to be so close to that. And I felt bad for him until this week. Because here's what I realized this week. When Jesus came and he touched this man and healed him, instead of this man taking time to get to know Jesus, all he wanted to do was immediately go to church. Like instead of the man realizing that the temple that was built to represent God, and God in the form of Jesus was standing there talking to him, he literally bypassed God to go to church. And I thought, man, we've got to learn the truth that we can't make the mistake of worshiping the building, worshiping the organization, thinking that Christianity is about a place or a service or a day. We can't make the mistake of blowing so fast by Jesus because we've got to go to church that we don't have time for him in the course of our regular life. We can't make the mistake of worshiping the building rather than the person that, was built, that it was built to honor. But that is what had happened in this story. The man had Jesus in front of him. And instead of saying, what's your name? Why did you do this? How do you have this power? He said, thanks, I'm out of here because I've always wanted to be a part of a church. And maybe you think Christianity is being a part of a church. That's a little bit of it. But following Jesus is so much more. And there's so many people like this man in John chapter 5 who will take the time to be seen in a church, but they won't take time to follow Jesus. And they're never really going to get where Jesus wants them to be in life. But then there's this third warning sign. And in John chapter 5, this was the most trouble for this man. And if we could see with spiritual eyes today, I think we'd see a lot of us living in warning sign number three. What happens when the new me carries around the old me? What happens when the new me chooses to carry around the old me? Man, there's so much biblical truth in John chapter 5 that I learned as I studied through this text. There's great truth about the reliability of Scripture. Skeptics for almost 1,900 years said this story never happened because Jerusalem is an ancient city. You can know where everything is. And up until about 100 years ago, no one had ever seen or heard of or unearthed the pool of Bethesda. So everyone said, we know where the sheep gate is. This story can't be true. It's a lie. It's all made up. And then 100 years ago, some archaeologist unearthed it, and it's all there exactly in the place, exactly at the depth, exactly like they said it looked like. So it's like John chapter 5 proves the reliability of Scripture so well because this is a story that happened where the Bible says it happened, when the Bible says it happened, and you can go there today. This story teaches us a lot about the reality of legalism, of Christian rules that 
you know, kind of get added to Christianity to make people feel more spiritual or to make you, you know, have a pattern which allows you to judge other people. We know in the Old Testament there was one commandment about the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. The longest commandment was actually the fourth commandment. This summer long, we're doing a series called The Ten. I'm going to teach through the Ten Commandments this summer at our church and not just give the commandments, but I'm going to talk about what Jesus said in addition to the commandments and how he defined them and how he taught them. It's going to be unbelievable. But there was one Old Testament commandment about the Sabbath. The religious leaders of the day had taken 39 specific things and they'd made those rules as well. So they said, the Old Testament said, honor the Sabbath, but let us tell you 39 ways to do that. And one of the ways they said you had to honor the Sabbath is you weren't allowed to carry anything on the Sabbath because Jeremiah and Jeremiah 17, 19 through 27 said you're not allowed to take things out of your home on the Sabbath. So they said, okay, that should be a rule. And if you do that, um, then that's sin. But later Nehemiah would come along in Nehemiah 13, 15 through 19, he would give commentary and he would tell people, listen, you're allowed to carry around stuff on the Sabbath. What Jeremiah was saying is you're not allowed, if you are a trader of merchandise, you're you're not allowed to carry your merchandise out of your home on the Sabbath and set up your shop and go to work. It doesn't have anything to do with carrying stuff. It has to do with working and trusting yourself rather than trusting God on the Sabbath. But they had kind of ignored all that. And they said, oh, you're just not allowed to carry anything. But then I find something really interesting in this. Almost every time Jesus is confronted with legalism in the New Testament, he always says, don't worry about it. But not this time. And I'm not exactly sure why, to be honest with you, but I know John chapter 5 reveals to us something about the condition of the heart. It reveals something about the condition of this man's heart that Jesus would go to him and he would say what he said in John 5, 14, see you are well again, stop sinning. See you are well again, stop sinning. So what was the sin that he was carrying his deal? No. I'm not sure what the sin is, but I know Jesus looked at the condition of his heart and he says, I have healed you. Maybe it was, it was that he ignored Jesus. Maybe it was that he told on Jesus. Maybe it was that he just blew by Jesus so he could go to the temple. I'm not sure what he did that was sin. All I know is Jesus looked at this man and said, you've been made well, stop sinning. You know, one of the greatest verses in the Bible that describes and defines what Christianity brings to your life is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. We have to ask the question, where did where'd the old go? Where did the old life go? Does it get just magically zapped away? Because I still sometimes feel like the old me. No. Does Jesus just kind of remove it? Is there, is there a magical spell that takes the old life? Where does the old life go when you become a Christian? Well, the Bible answers that question. When we become Christians, we throw it off. We, out of obedience, out of submission, out of recognition of the authority of who God is, out of not just accepting the miracle of faith, but following the miracle worker of faith, we do what he tells us regardless of whether or not even we, with, if we agree with everything. Because we live under submission to the authority. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says it this way, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, it's our spiritual race and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame. 
He sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. So Hebrews 12 said Jesus picked up the cross so you could throw off your old life. But it's your choice. When Jesus heals you, you get to decide as you run your spiritual race whether you're going to throw off the old life. Jesus picked up a cross so you could lay down your sin and everything else that slows you down spiritually. So as Christians, we throw off the old life unless we pick it up again and we carry it with us into the new life. And that's what had happened in John chapter 5. On a set of legs that had been made brand new, the man picked up his old life symbolized in a mat that had for 38 years been his home. And he said, with the new life Jesus has given me, I'm going to take my old life and I'm going to go to church. And he was new Carrying old, going to church. Is that a picture of your life? Are you a new person with a new life? Are you only living today because of a second chance, second chance legs that Jesus has given you spiritually and you've used those second chance legs to just keep living in and walking in the same old sin and lifestyle? Are you a new person still carrying around your old life? Do you walk into church each week with your old habits slung around your shoulder, walking in your new faith on your new legs, but you are still the exact same person that you've always been because when Jesus said, get up and walk, you took your old life and you said, all right, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm just going to be the same old person, but I'm just going uh, you know, to have Jesus as a part of my life too. Is that what your life looks like? Do you use the same old language that you used to use? Maybe you kind of zip up the, the package of language when you come to church, but when you leave church, you put the thing right back on, and with your new spiritual legs, do you walk around talking like you used to talk before you found Jesus? Do you live life with the same old attitudes that you've always had? Were you, before you met Jesus, a negative, critical, pessimistic person who just thought the worst about everyone and everything, and then you met Jesus and you added Jesus to your negative, pessimistic, critical worldview that thinks the worst about everyone and everything, and you walk into church with your negative, critical, pessimistic worldview on your back, and you worship Jesus with one hand while holding on to the old life in the other? Because that's a picture of John chapter 5. Are you living with... An old lifestyle, the old you, the things the old you used to do before you became a Christian, but then Jesus changed you, he healed you, he gave you a chance to get up and walk again on new legs, but you've walked right back into the places you were with the people you were doing stuff with, looking at the same old garbage on the internet, watching the same old garbage on TV, reading the same old garbage in books and magazines. Do you have your new life with your old life slung around your shoulder? You know, the message I've preached to teenagers more than any message in my life has been on sexual purity. And a few years ago, I gave that at a camp that had over a thousand students at it, asking kids to commit their life to sexual purity until they were married. At the end of that message, where a lot of kids made that decision, an old pastor came forward and he said, Christian, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. And he said, can I tell you something? Because that was a great message for these kids today. But can I tell you something? He was in his 60s and I said, yeah. He said, do you know the highest rate of unmarried people in the church having sex? Do you know who they are? And I said, no. He said, Christian, it's not teenagers. It's single adults over the age of 25. And he said, they think purity is a kid thing instead of a Christian thing. So it was a good message, but maybe you should give it to adults sometimes. 
Because there's a lot of people that walk around on their Jesus legs carrying their old lifestyle of sexual impurity with them. You're still living in and walking into your old sin? Jesus gave you the legs to do it? You feel better about yourself? You feel pretty secure in your eternity? But you still go live in your old sin? See, John chapter 5 is a picture of a person who with his new life and his old life got up and went to church. Is that you this Sunday morning? The new you and the old you? Have both come to church because it's Sunday? Can I say something to you this morning? I mean, as, as one of the pastors of this church, can I say something sensitively but strongly this morning? If you're a Christian, you need to stop living in sin. It's just that simple. Like, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, put down the mat. You've been healed. That's your old life. You don't have to live that one anymore. Put it down. Throw it away. Burn it. Be done with it. Follow Jesus without the old life on your back as you follow Jesus. If about a month and a half ago, I was on a flight from Atlanta to Kansas City. I'd spoken to a youth group in Atlanta. And I was on Southwest Airlines. If you've ever flown Southwest, you don't have assigned seats. You just try to get on as early as you can and sit down. And I managed to secure an aisle seat. I was very grateful. I was hoping the flight wasn't full and that nobody would sit by me. But sure enough, two people came and they sat by me. And in, 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 in old country boy, and I mean, this guy, was, this guy was country. Like, if you've ever seen like swamp people, I mean, this guy, this guy was country. Onto the Southwest airplane, cut off t-shirt, hat with a hook on the front beard, most of his teeth. He may have been chewing tobacco while he got on the plane. I mean, he was country, right? He's country. He and his girl come on the plane and they sit down next to me. She's in the middle seat. He's on the, uh, he's on the window. Atlanta to Kansas City. And as we take off from Atlanta and go to Kansas City, I'm trying just as hard as I can to go to sleep. I've spoken like five times in three days. I'm exhausted. And as we fly over, I'm not sure where. This guy bumps his girl and he says, there's New Orleans. And I kind of, kind of peeked, and I thought, "All right, this this is good. This is good enough to be awake for." So, she she says, "What?" And he says, "There's New Orleans," and she said, "We're not flying over. Like we're not flying over New Orleans. We're going from Atlanta to Kansas. That's that's not New Orleans." And he says, "Yeah, it is." And he starts naming things. There's this river, and there's that building. And I've been to I've been to that place, and he's just like, "There's New Orleans." She takes the Southwest airplane book out of the back of the thing. She turns to the page where it shows flight patterns. And she said, here's Atlanta to Kansas City. Like, New Orleans is way down here. That, like, that can't be New Orleans. And he looks at her with a, I'm going to stab you in the heart look. And he says, that's New Orleans. And she closed the book and said, okay. And I just saw it. I grabbed my phone immediately and thought, I've got to use that in a sermon. So yeah, I tapped that into my phone. Thought that was unbelievable. That's what I do with every great story I have. I immediately put it in my phone so I don't forget. Because here's the reason. There are so many Christians who think the path between where you are right now and Jesus, there's so many Christians that think it goes through New Orleans, goes through sin. Oh, here, here's where I am and I'm following Jesus but I got, you know, I got this sin and I got that sin. And I just kind of live with this habit. And Jesus just forgives me. 
And I'm a Christian and I'm going to follow Jesus, but, but I, I, I'm going to take the long way to get there. You don't have to go through New Orleans to get from Atlanta to Kansas City. And you don't have to live in sin to get from where you are and who you are to where Jesus wants you to be and who Jesus wants you to be. You see, if a new life has come to you through Jesus, throw away the old stuff. Lay it down. Not because you're breaking some stupid religious law, but because the condition of your heart is sensitive to Jesus, lay it down. You say, well, how do I do that? There's a lot of ways to do that. But you know the first way to do that, the greatest picture in the Bible of laying down your old life is the picture of baptism. One of the first ways that a Christian shows the condition of their heart towards sin is baptism. Because what baptism does is baptism acknowledges that my life has made me sinful, my life has made me dirty. What baptism acknowledges is there's some stuff in my life that I've got to bury and get rid of. What baptism acknowledges is that in the, in the progress of burying some old things in my life and, and leaning into Jesus that my life actually gets cleaned and I raise out of the water like I'm a brand new person. Baptism does that better than anything in the Bible. And I'm upset at the church a little bit. Churches and denominations. Because I believe we've made baptism such a ritual that we've removed the heart from it. And we're baptizing people that it just doesn't mean anything to them because they don't know what it's supposed to mean yet. And baptism doesn't mean to people, or maybe it didn't mean to you, what it should have. Which is why we find ourselves baptizing so, baptizing so many adults at our church. Because for the first time, people have realized what it means, and they say, I, I want to do that, now that I understand that. 1 Peter 3.21 says this about baptism. It was always one of the most important things in the New Testament preaching and teaching. 1 Peter 3.21 says water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, like it really doesn't do anything, but it's a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is this process that says, my conscience understands that I've been cleaned that I'm supposed to throw off the old stuff and then I'm supposed to start living brand new for Jesus. In Acts chapter 22, after starting a church that had been going and after having people who had given their hearts to Jesus, the Apostle Paul, as only the Apostle Paul could, challenged a church in Acts 22, 16, a group of people who'd been waiting to take the next steps in following Jesus. He said, what are you waiting for? As only the Apostle Paul could, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away. Call on his name. If you're a Christian in here today, if you're a follower of Jesus who's not been baptized, it's time. What are you waiting for? It's time. And if you're a Christian in here who has used the brand new life in your new legs to still support the old life on your shoulder, you've got to throw that off. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and I want to take the most direct route from where I am to where I want to be. Forgive me. I'm not going to keep going through New Orleans anymore. I just want to be closer to Jesus. I want you to watch our baptism video from Palm Sunday. We baptized eight people on Palm Sunday. And every time we baptize someone at our church, we have them tell their story. We pulled the most important, poignant, powerful word 
from the stories of our people who got baptized on Palm Sunday and we've placed it in their video. As you consider, some of you for the first time getting baptized, some of you, maybe you did baptism thing as, like, as such a young infant that you don't even remember it, but now your conscience understands it and you say, okay, I think this is for me. I want you to think about your baptism, your next step as you watch what following Jesus did in the lives of these people. So what are you waiting for? I want everyone right now to reach into your bulletin and pull out this baptism card. In just a minute, our worship team is going to lead us in one of my favorite songs that I feel like is a picture of baptism just in itself. Even if you've been baptized, reach for this card now so the person sitting next to you who wants to won't feel awkward doing it. It's right inside your bulletin. And if this is your next step, what are you waiting for? Next Sunday after our services, we're going to have our next baptism service. It's going to be 85 degrees and sunny. It's going to be our greatest baptism service ever. And it's a chance for you to talk about your conscience towards God. Maybe your conscience has been made new. Maybe your conscience now trusts. Maybe your conscience says, I'm not broken anymore. It's a chance for you to say, I realize I've not made a decision for Jesus, but I've made a, I've made a decision about the direction of my life to follow Jesus. And I'm all in. And I need to throw some stuff down. And I need to be cleansed of some stuff. And I need to start moving in a new direction. There's no better way to symbolize that than through baptism. I believe baptism becomes a step in your spiritual life that you can always go back to and start over from there. Remember when you used to play the old Nintendo games and you had to pass like level 4.2 to like save it so that you could get back there? Baptism is like one of those spiritual levels that once you pass it, it just does something that allows you to reset a little further spiritually as you walk with Jesus. I beg of you, what are you waiting for? If you've not been baptized with a clear conscience of understanding what it is, do it next Sunday. Fill out this card, at the end of the service, drop it in one of the boxes, and next Sunday I'll meet you on a beautiful Sunday afternoon and we'll celebrate together this massive step in your life. Maybe you've been baptized, maybe you understood it, maybe you are a new person who every day carries the old life. It's time to throw it down. It's time to lay it down. Jesus has made you different. Jesus has made you new. It's time to throw the old.